Several years ago, the gym that I go to went through a phase where the radio station in the morning was typically set to a station on Sirius Radio called Ozzy's Boneyard. Now, the Ozzy and Ozzy's Boneyard was Ozzy Osbourne. And I'm not a big fan of Ozzy Osbourne to begin with, but I wasn't a big fan of the station uh, for a lot of reasons. One was that frequently it had his family get on there and talk. Um, And they typically, in those times, they would refer to Ozzy as the the Prince of Darkness. And periodically they'd play a clip of Ozzy's wife Sharon saying something to the effect of, Praise the Prince of Darkness. And other times there'd be a clip that said, All hail the Prince of Darkness. And then one day they played a clip of Ozzy talking, and he said something that bothered me more than all of that combined. He said, People say, if you listen to my records, you'll go to hell. Tell you what, I'll join you, and we'll just have a good time. Now I know that a lot of people would say that's just a, a marketing tool, and, and I understand that that is just kind of a marketing tool. Right? Statements like that would cause kids who listen to the station to think they're cool and they're tough and they're rebels by saying it. And it allows guys my age and older to relive their youth so that they could feel like they're still cool, they're still tough, and they're still rebels in their life. And so while I understand it's a marketing tool, uh, and typically an effective one, I'm sure, it still bothers me. Now, it doesn't bother me because it makes me mad uh, or angry in any way. It, it doesn't. Instead, it bothers me because it trivializes something that is real and terrible. I mean, I can see why unbelievers would think that stuff like that's not a big deal. I mean, if you don't believe the Bible and you don't believe that there is a God or a Satan or a heaven or a hell, then, then that is just kind of a nifty way to sound cool. However, if you do even have a a partial belief in the Bible, and you do accept that there is a God and a devil, a heaven and a hell, then these sort of statements ought to grieve our hearts. Now, they shouldn't make us mad at those who say them because there's not anything to get mad about. Rather, it should break our hearts that people act as though God is not important, that judgment is not certain. They believe that hell will be a really big party. And the Bible teaches very different realities. Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that not only shows us the certainty of judgment, but shows us the severity of Judgment Day as well, so that we will not trivialize it. Open your Bible to Revelation 20, verse 11 is where we're going to start. That's page 961 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Revelation 20, verse 11, the Apostle John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast the lake of fire. Title of the message this morning is The Certainty Judgment. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we have gathered here in your name with a desire to hear from you. So, Lord, as we look at your word, open our hearts and open our minds to receive what you have for us today. What we're looking at today is a tough subject. Father, what we're looking at today can be scary. It can be hard and it can be weighty. Lord, really, I kind of think it ought to be all of those things. The reality that there is a day when we will stand before you and give an account for our lives. Well, there ought to be a bit of trembling in that. There ought to be a bit of weight to something along those lines. So, Father, today, let our hearts and minds be centered that we would we wouldn't be distracted For I know that there is an enemy that likes to steal the good seed to keep it from bearing fruit in our hearts. And he would love nothing more than distract us today from being able to understand what's going to happen on this great day of judgment. Father, let your spirit guide me that I would speak your words and your ways for your glory. Lord, that I wouldn't say anything you don't want me to say. And I wouldn't say anything in the wrong attitude. And Lord, let your spirit also open hearts and minds. Give ears to hear and hearts to respond to your word. God, as we come to the end of the service, there will be a time to examine our lives, to be sure that our name is written in the book of life. And in that time, let us examine ourselves seriously. Let your Holy Spirit search us and try us and see where we are. Make it clear throughout the entire message. Father, begin even now showing us where we are in our standing with you. Lord, if we are not saved if our names are not written in the book of life make that abundantly clear let that bother us to the point that we would cry out to jesus to save us have your way in all of our hearts and lives today we ask in jesus name amen maybe see now this passage it comes at the end of the the thousand year reign of christ on the earth and just before the new jerusalem comes down and eternity is ushered in. And in this passage, we are given a picture of all the world standing before God in judgment. And John goes to great lengths to make us understand that no one escapes this day. Those who fled found no place to hide. The dead, small and great, stood Before God, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And the picture is that no one escapes. No one gets by. No one hides from this death. And so the key truth that I want us to understand is that judgment day is an inescapable obligation. There is a judgment to come. And there is no way to avoid it. From this passage, I want to show us four truths, four facts about judgment day, judgment, so that we would have the right ideas and thoughts about judgment day, that we would not trivialize it and we would feel the weight of the day that's to come. First, that judgment reveals God's greatness. Verse 11, it says, and he saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, whose, from whose face the, the earth and the heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. Now the description of the throne 
is fourfold and each are significant in some ways to reveal to us the greatness of God. But first it tells us that it's a great throne. But it is a great throne of judgment and it's far greater than any other throne or, or judiciary seat that has ever existed. It's greater because the sovereign ruler of the universe is the one who passes judgment from this throne. The judgments that are passed from the great throne are final. They are eternal. They cannot be appealed and they will never be overturned. There is no higher court than the great throne on this day. It also tells us that it's a great white throne. Now white, most commentators believe, uh, agree that it, it refers to the holiness, the purity and the righteousness of the judge sitting on the throne. Right, the judge that sits on this throne and casts judgment, he will cast a righteous judgment. Right, he will, he will not make any mistakes. There will not be any technicalities that get people off. There will be no favoritism for one person or a group of people over another. His judgment on this day will be according to His nature, which is pure, holy, righteous, and just. And it is God's throne. God Himself sits on this throne. And I want to show you something about God sitting on the throne that's not pictured here, but is pictured earlier. Hold your finger here, because of course we're coming back, but look at Revelation 4. Look at verse 2. John writing says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set upon the throne. Now look at the description in verse 3 and 4. And he who sat there was like jasper and sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne and in appearance like an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the throne sat 24 elders clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. Right now. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time imagining what that throne scene must look like. Um, but what I can gather, what I can imagine, is that this is an awesome sight. That what John is seeing on this day here is not just something that makes him go, golly gee, that's cool. But it's something that likely leaves him speechless, leaves him in awe. Of the sight that he is seeing and the one that is sitting on the throne. But it goes on. Look at what it says in verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. We don't have time to get into living creatures, but notice the thunder and the lightning that proceed from the throne. Have you ever, of course, from Oklahoma, you've been caught in a massive thunderstorm where the lightning sort of shook and then the earth shook and then the thunder roared and it kind of sent a fight or flight response within you. It was just rattled you to the core. That, that's the picture here. But, and then there are those creatures, and again, I don't have time to get into it, but just look at the description of them in verse 7. 
The first living creature was like a lion. The second like a calf. The third like a face, had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. And in verse 6 says they had eyes. In full of eyes in front and back. And they flew in verses 8. And they ceased not to cry out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Right now, so you have the glory of the one on the throne in verses 3 and 4. Right, that great glory that just shines out from His throne. You have the power of the one on the throne. From verse 5, as the lightning and the thundering proceed from His throne and are under His power. And you have really the just the awesome majesty as these creatures, which are on their own, would be amazing to behold as they worship the Lord. Can you imagine the greatness and the glory and the awesome power that radiates from this throne and the one who sets upon it? That is a picture. Go ahead, turn back to Revelation 19, Revelation 20. It is a picture of what this throne is going to be like. Right? And all of these things are working together to cause the person who is standing in judgment to realize the greatness and the glory of Almighty God. And that's important for what we're talking about today in judgment. Because of the effect it will have on those who stand before God. Atheist and comedian Stephen Fry was once asked what he would say to God if there was a God when he stood before him. And Fry began to list a series of questions that he would ask God. And the tone of the questions put Fry standing in judgment over God. Why did you allow this? Who are you to question me when you allowed that? And he just goes on and on as if he is the one standing in judgment over Almighty God on this day. And chances are you've heard people make similar statements. They've explained how that if they stand before God, they'll tell Him how good they were and they'll defend their actions. The reality is going to be far different. The reality is when people stand before the great white throne and the King of creation and all of His glory, they are going to stand in fear. As they stand before the king and the judge in all of his glory, their mouths will be stopped. And they will stand, be silent before the just judge of the universe. Because in this moment of judgment, they will finally, firstly understand the greatness of Almighty God. Judgment reveals the greatness of God. Secondly, judgment executes God's justice. As I mentioned, John goes to great lengths to explain that no one escapes judgment. He says in verse 12 that I saw the dead small, he says first. The picture of, of small standing before God. It refers to ordinary people who face God in judgment. Now these aren't the raving lunatics who conquered nations and killed millions. These are ordinary, common, everyday 
people. These will be people who, in many cases, may have lived basically moral lives. The sins that they've committed are only what what society would call small or acceptable or understandable. It may well be that some of these people, that what they've done is they've just been selfish in their life. Or they've been chronic complainers. Or they've been gossips. Or they've cheated on their taxes. Or they were sexually immoral in ways that, that culture said was fine. Or they lied. And yet here they are. Standing before God. The great white throne of judgment. But John also tells us that the small and the great also stand before God. Now the great... Well, this is the raving lunatics that conquered nations and killed many. This would also include world leaders, great businessmen, the rich and the famous, Nobel Prize winners, and anyone else that attained any sort of greatness or recognition or honor in this life. They too will stand before God in judgment. How much money... They had will not matter. How big the corporation they led was will not matter. The kind of nation they were a part of will not matter. The number of awards they won will not matter. They do not escape. They stand before God in judgment. He also tells us in verse 13 that the sea gives up the dead who are in it. Death and Hades or the grave deliver up the dead. Who are in them. And the idea with this is that there is just no escape from the great white throne of judgment. Those who are alive when this all happens, they will stand before God in judgment. Those who died thousands of years ago, they will stand before God in judgment. Those who died at sea and their bodies were never recovered will stand before God in judgment. Those who died in fires and their bodies were incinerated will stand before God in judgment. No one escapes standing before God in judgment. And this is important. For in our day, injustice abounds. But every city and every town in the world has a list of unsolved crimes. Crimes were committed and no one was caught and no criminal was ever punished. There are instances of people doing horrific acts against other human, caught, arrested, tried, and let off on a technicality of some sort. Injustice abounds in this life. It seems at times that people escape earthly justice. They do things and no one sees or no one cares and they get by maybe because of who they are, how much money they have, who they're connected to. And injustice will abound in our world as long as it goes on. A sinful, imperfect world will always produce a sinful, imperfect justice system. But there is a day coming in which all justice will be served. There is coming a day in which there will be absolute and ultimate justice 
given out. And no one will be exempt. No one will be overlooked. No one will be missed. No one will fall through the cracks. No one will be the exception. No one will get by on a technicality. No one will escape the judgment of God. Whether they are great in this life or whether they are small in this life. On this day, God's absolute, perfect justice will be executed. Thirdly, judgment demonstrates God's standard. We're told in verse 12 that the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Verse 12 and 13 talk about the being judged, each one according to his works. You put these two things together, the books and the works of the person being judged, and what you find is, is really essentially an, an absolute standard of judgment. Right? That there is going to be an absolute standard on that day that, that everyone will be judged by. And everyone will be judged by the same standard. Right? There won't be a standard for one people and one for another. Everyone, the exact same standard. So, the, what are the books? Well, I, I believe there are at least three books. Right? One would be the Bible. Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which will judge him. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Right? The Bible contains everything that is necessary for life, salvation, and godliness. A part of what we find in Scripture is God's absolute and unchanging standard of righteousness. Right? This includes the, the Ten Commandments and all the ways the Ten Commandments are fleshed out that the Bible describes. It also explains to us how to be righteous. Not just how to do righteous, but how to be righteous through Jesus. And this lays out this absolute standard. Then another book, I believe, will contain the works of the people. right? Because there are multiple books and everyone will be judged according to their works. So I believe there will be a book opened that more or less is a record of all the things that were done in the person being judged life. Scripture talks about this in a couple of places. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Paul said some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them into judgment. Those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So every good, th everything will be brought into judgment, including every secret thing. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, Paul says, and I like this, some men's sins are clearly evident, but others follow later. Here's what he's saying. There are some people that live wicked lives, open and obvious, and that stuff just goes on. You can just kind of tell they're going into judgment, the life full of sin. But other people, but other people can hide it. 
Other people can cover it. Other people can make us believe they're good people. They can make us believe they're Christian people. They can make us believe they're righteous people. But if that's not what's real, God sees and God knows. And God will bring that into judgment. Not what they appear to be, but what they genuinely are. Now, if this judgment is similar to a criminal court case, as I kind of imagine it, then the books contain the records of the lives of the person standing in judgment. It'll be read for them to hear, sort of like the bailiff reading the charges against a person being tried in a court of law. And as the works of the person are read, it's not going to demonstrate the goodness of this person. But as those works are read, it's not going to make them puffed up with pride and say, See God, look at all the good I did. I deserve to go to heaven. Instead, as all of the works, the secret things, the hidden things are read. What is going to wash over the person in judgment is the reality that all have sinned. Fallen short. The glory of God. And then once that has washed over them. There will be a realization that the wages of sin is death. Because another book will be read will be Scripture, which will lay out, here's what you did. Here's what I said was right. Here's what you did. Here's what I said was right. And it's going to be this absolute standard that lays waste to self-righteousness. That lays waste to pride. That lays waste to anything that would make one think they stood before the Lord could say, I deserve heaven, let me in. They will be brought to a place of absolute despondency, I believe. Over their sinful nature, their depravity in life. But then there's another book. And it's the book of life. The book of life is referred to sometimes as the Lamb's book of life. Old and New Testaments both refer to a book that God has that contains the names of those who are His people. Several places, but just two. Moses prayed, yet now if you will... Forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. The Apostle Paul wrote, and he urged the true companion, help those women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written, who are in the book of life. But I believe that these verses, and again, there's more, plus what we see in Revelation 20, gives us as a picture that when someone is saved, their name is written in a book in heaven called the book of life. I, I mean, if it's a literal book and it's really there in that way, I would say it probably has the date and the time that it was all settled. And it's a perfectly accurate record of all who have repented of their sins and believed In Jesus Christ. And a person's name not recorded in the book of life indicates that they never repented of their sins. And they never believed in Jesus Christ. So if it's like a court scene. 
The books are opened. Here's your life and what you did. Every secret thing, every hidden thing. All the stuff no one else saw but God. There it is. And then there's the Bible. Here's was my standard. And here's what I said. And here's, man, the many ways that you didn't do it. And then a search is made of a third book. Open it up. Go to the R's. Ross. 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 Ross Stacy James. No. No, your, your name is not here. You still have your sins to deal with. You still have the punishment for your sins to take. And, and this all provides a, a twofold judgment on the person standing before God. First, it does confirm that they, they deserve God's judgment. They understand. They have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standards. They understand that the wages of sin is death. And I believe all those in hell do understand that they deserve to be there. I'll tell you why I believe that. We have a couple of instances in the the New Testament of people in hell and maybe getting pictures of it. We have Lazarus and the rich man. As the rich man cries out from hell, does he say, "I, I don't deserve this? Does he say, I should have been spared from this? I should be with you, Father Abraham? He doesn't, does he? He doesn't do anything to kind of say, I deserve it. He just accepts. This is where he's at. Go to my brothers. Save them from this awful place. Also, we see in Revelation, as God's judgment begins to be poured out through the bowls and the judgments that are poured out, the people on the earth, it says, they recognize that this is God's judgment coming upon them. And an interesting thing happens when they recognize that. Do you realize that not a one of them ever cries out for mercy? Not, not a one of them ever says, oh God, forgive me. Oh God, I don't deserve this. Do you know what they all do in that moment of experiencing the just wrath of God? They curse God in their lives. Those who are in this place on this day and find their names not in the book of life, they will understand that this is their deserved judgment. The second thing it will reveal is their name is not in the book of life. It's that they have rejected the only one Savior who could have spared them from the judgment to come. They had rejected Jesus. They did say no. They did Turn him away. And this provides an absolute standard. Every person standing before the great white throne will be judged by. And there will not be an exception made for anyone under any circumstances. It will be absolute and the same for each and every person who stands before the Lord on this day. So judgment reveals God's greatness. Judgment executes God's justice. Judgment demonstrates God's standards. And then finally, judgment confirms God's word.
Verse 15. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast to the lake of fire. It's important that we're specifically told they were cast in the lake of fire because their name was not in the book of life. This reminds us that the big deal is Jesus, not morality. They're not cast in the lake of fire because they were mean. They're not cast in the lake of fire because they weren't generous. They aren't cast in the lake of fire because they lived wicked, immoral lives. They are cast in the lake of fire because they rejected Jesus Christ and the salvation that He offered them. More than anything else, what matters is Jesus and what we believe about Him. Those who have repented of their sins and believed on Him and receive His righteousness, they do not face this judgment that's described here. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, everyone who rejects Jesus, no matter how good they were according to the world's standards, no matter how moral they were according to the world's standards, how selfless they were according to the world's standards, how nice they were according to the world's standards. Then verse 15 describes their destiny because they rejected Jesus. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast to the lake of fire. I was going to have us turn to Luke 16 the rich man and Lazarus, to kind of get a deeper look at what hell is like, but I don't think time would allow for that. So I want to share two quick truths that we learned from hell, particularly from that passage, and encourage you to read Luke 16, 19-31 later. Two truths that, that are of enormous consequence about the lake of fire. So hell is a place of conscious torment. If you remember from the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man was... Conscious and aware of his agony. Revelation 14.11 tells us that the smoke of their torments rises forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. And that is a, that is a horrific concept. Eternally conscious of suffering. And it's hopeless because hell is forever. Once death occurs, eternal destinies cannot be changed. In my notes, I have written that God's decision upon death is final. But it's really not God's decision on that, is it? In the end, it's our decision that is final. For in this life, we have chosen to reject Jesus. We have chosen not to repent and believe. We have chosen to tell God we will do it our way. We do not need you. And in eternity, 
God allows us to make that decision forever. People cannot wait until the day of judgment to cry out to Jesus, for on this day it is too late. Judgment is based upon the decisions and the choices to reject Jesus in this life. And at this moment, it will be permanent. If in this life, people choose to reject Christ, then they will live without Christ in eternity. Once people end up here, there is no escape. And it's interesting. Because if we were to look at Hebrews 4, we would find a different throne. A throne that we're called to approach boldly. A throne of grace. Where we find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. And the reality is we are all going to, to face a throne with God on it. The question is, will we now go to the throne of grace... And find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Or will we wait and stand before the great white throne. And on that day there is no grace. There is no mercy. There is just judgment. Talking about hell. Judgment in general is not a pleasant thing to do. These are not happy thoughts that will send us. Out today with a song on our lips and a bounce in our steps. But it doesn't change the facts as they're given in Scripture. Scripture teaches that there is a hell. And it is a literal fiery hell. And it is the final destination of every person. Small and great. Who reject Jesus Christ. People can reject this today, and and many do. But Judgment Day will confirm the truth of God's Word. It will be proven right. The judgment of God is a certainty. It is coming. It is coming whether we like it or not. It is coming whether we believe it or not. There is coming a day when we will all stand before God and judgment. And do you know, can you say with certainty what will happen to you when that day comes? Will you face the judgment of God? Or will you have been spared by Jesus from the judgment of God? Will you hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will you hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Will there be weeping? A gnashing of teeth. Or will there be joy and gladness at the presence of your Savior? 
it is common today to say no one knows for sure what will happen on this day. And I want you to know that that is a lie from the pit of hell. You can know for sure that you will be saved from the judgment to come. You can know for sure that you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You can know for sure that on that day there will be joy and gladness instead of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can know for sure when you have believed on Jesus Christ for your salvation. Now believing on Jesus isn't just sort of a general belief. It's not enough to believe that there's a God out there somewhere. And it's not enough to believe that Jesus is or was a real person. Belief, saving belief, is very specific. It is a belief in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You must believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You must believe that He rose from the dead on the third day. You must believe that that death and resurrection is the only hope for salvation that you have. Why will your name be in the book of life? If your answer is anything but Jesus, my friend, you must repent and believe today. For your name nor mine will be there because we were good people. Your name nor mine will be there because we were kind, because we were compassionate, because we were generous, because we helped our neighbor. Our names will be here for one reason and one reason only. That we believe Jesus Christ died for our sins and we cried out to Him to save us. There is no room at the cross for self-righteousness. There is no room at the cross for self-sufficiency. Salvation, believing in Jesus, is saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Is your name written in the book of life? That is your name decision to make. I mean, that is the thing. Everyone has to make it for themselves. There is no one that can make it for you. It is an intentional, deliberate act of the person. No one is automatically saved. And no one is accidentally saved. But everyone can be saved. I mean, the cross testifies the fact that God loves you and wants to save you. Probably we could all quote John 3.16 this morning. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. This morning God loves you. And God wants you to be saved. This is not God's will or God's want for any of our lives. But it is our choice to make. 
We must choose Jesus. And we must choose Him in this life. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes. Just There should be a weight on all of us with a message like this. For those who have believed in Jesus Christ, there should be a weight over our lost loved ones. It should weigh heavily on our hearts that as they reject Jesus, this is what awaits them. And I know the temptation for so so many of us is to make make excuses. To work out reasons why our loved one will be the exception. But we must not do that. For when we do, all we do is comfort our hearts with a lie. And we tell them peace, peace when there is no peace. And we condemn them to a horrible, horrible eternity that is not God's desire for their lives. So it should weigh on us. And there should be a weight if you have never repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ. There should be pressure. Pressure has to be understood in light of what it is. It is Jesus. But it's not Jesus telling you how horrible you are. It is Jesus trying to awaken you to first your need for salvation and secondly to the fact that He is the one that can save If you feel pressure from this today because you have never repented and believed, do not run from that pressure. Let it lead you to Jesus who calls to you to come and lay this burden down and let Him give you life and life more abundantly. We're going to take time and pray. And if you need the salvation that Jesus offers, you spend this time crying out to Him. There is no magic prayer, but you could pray something like, Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I want my name written in the book of life. So I turn from sin and I turn from self and I turn to you. I believe that you died for my sins and rose again. Because of that I ask you. To 
forgive me. To become my Savior and Lord. I surrender my life to you. Do not pass up this opportunity. If you're here and you are a believer, then you spend this time, you pray for the salvation of those God brings to your mind so that this would not be their fate.